So if you're, if you're new or if you're visiting us uh, for the first time this morning, you're, you've just walked in, in the middle of a, a short two-week sort of mini-series mini on the vision and the values of Church 21. Vision and values. It kind of it sounds a little bit corporate, right? But what I'm going to do, we're, we're going to try and unpack that this morning. Because every, every year around this time, we want to sort of hit refresh and remind ourselves sort of the why we do what we do, right? Refresh in the light of who, who God is and what he's done, and then in the light of that, who we are, and then what we're called to do. So last week, the first part, Dwight preached on the vision from past into the present. He talked about how um, the story of our human parents, how there was goodness but also fallenness, and then he moved into the story of Christianity here in Quebec, the sort of rise in the, in the fall of it. And then he ended by talking about the beginning of Church 21, how we were planted about six years ago. And so last week, Dwight moved from you know, past to present, and this week, I'll be moving from present and looking forwards into the future. We're going to be talking about change about movement from where we are now into where we want to be, where we envision ourselves to be in the future. And of course, this is all possible because the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is able to change you and this city and in turn, the whole world. This past week, I was out jogging in my neighborhood. And it doesn't really matter uh, what neighborhood you live here in the city. You're, you're probably going to be like me. You're, you're, you're bound to pass sort of like a massive stone church somewhere on that route. And for the first time this past week, I noticed as I jogged past that church, there was a, there's sort of like a founding stone or a cornerstone in the corner. And it said 1909 to 1919. And this church seats about 1,000 people. Can you believe that about 100 years ago, there was enough desire, there was enough people, and there was enough resources to build this sort of massive structure in the name of Christianity. Um, and now, most of the churches sort of have become like giant memorials to a forgotten king, right? There was an article in the New York Times um, I wasn't able to actually get it up there. There's an article in the New York Times on this, the, the phenomenon of churches in Quebec, right, being turned into spas and libraries and dance clubs. And um, these buildings, they're, they're representative of a massive change that's happened in this province over the last hundred years. And many in this province, they would look at this change and they would say, yes, you know, it's, it's sad to see these buildings close, but this change is progress, this change is, is progress away from years of abuse and control and superstition. And my role today, I'm not going to venture into a discussion on the history of Catholicism in this process. But what I want to point out to you is, is quite simple. What is this belief in progress that you talk about, right? Have you ever noticed how much we throw this word progress around? We talk about progressive policies, progressive parties, progressive societies, right? And there's an assumption in all this talk of moving forwards, of attaining a certain vision. Think of our prime minister. A few years ago, he justified one of his moral positions by simply saying this, because it's 2015, and seeing this, there's, a, there's an assumption that history is moving forwards, that it's moving towards a certain vision. And now I agree with our prime minister that history is progressing, but I believe it because of my Christianity, 
not despite of it. And what do I mean by this? Here's a challenge for my atheist and agnostic friends. What makes you think that history is really progressing, right? And to what end? See, if God doesn't exist and if naturalism is true, then what real ultimate good or end can you speak of, right? The sun, it's running out of energy. Everything you've built will be burnt up. Your memory's forgotten. The universe erased. And so reasoning out of your atheistic naturalism actually tells you that this is the case. And so in order to believe that history is progressing, you actually have to suspend your reason. And so then to believe that history is progressing, you do this despite your atheism, not because of it. And so I think here's where belief in Christianity can help you. See, if the God of the Jews and Christians exists, so does the progress of history. The universe isn't all there is. We aren't in a closed system just subject to the the blind and the brute forces of nature. No, we're in a world animated by divine breath and sustained by divine nail-pierced hands. And so this isn't a blind optimism. This is reality. It's rooted in reason, in history, in experience. And it's good and necessary that we capture this vision. So what is the Christian vision then? I'm talking of this. What is this Christian vision of history? And I think Paul captures it well in Colossians 1, where he says, for in him, and him here is is Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the Christian view of history is this. It's the reconciliation, the bringing back together of all things into God. Dwight explained how uh, last week the, the world that we were created in was good, but we've, we've made a mess of it, and it's fallen. Things are, in other words, they're not as they should be. And so our vision, our hope, is that God, through his death on the cross, will reconcile all things, bring back together all things on heaven, and on earth. And so this text we read, uh, we started with this morning in Acts, it, it gives shape, right, to how the early Christians live this out. They live lives of transformed um, relationships with God and with each other. And there was, it started out with just a handful of them. There was 12, and then there was hundreds, and then thousands, millions, entire cities, an entire empire transformed, changed by the gospel. And it's changing, I want to say, the world today too. And this is what we're going to look at. How do we live this out? The change that the gospel brings. The gospel can change you, the city, and the world. The way we express this here at Church One is with our motto, change the city collectively. And I'm going to unpack how the gospel changes you, how the gospel changes the city, and then how the gospel changes the world. So how the gospel changes you, the city, and the world. So first, The gospel changes you. There are going to be those here who are a little uh, resistant to this idea of change, and there are going to be those here who embrace this idea of change. Really, the question you want to know is, what sort of change, right, am I talking about? Well, this is a change that goes right to the core. The ancients used to talk about the seat of your, your will and your emotions and your reason all in one word, 
the heart, the heart. And so the gospel, the change that it brings is not merely just a change of your emotions or a change of your thinking or a change of your will. It's a change of the you that governs all these things, your heart. It's a, you could say, a heart transplant. Most of us, we, when we think about change, right, we, we like the idea of our society changing around us, our government changing, other people changing, right? But when it comes to change in us, we say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't really need to change. I'm not that bad, right? See, we, we like others changing, but we resist the change in us. But if you hold that thought, let me ask you this question. If everyone in the world believed that, like you did, would the world ever progress? If everyone in the world believed they didn't need to change, other people need to change, would the world really progress? My wife, uh, Sandra, she's, she's more reflective than I am. She said I could tell you this. One day, uh, early in our marriage, we had a conversation, and she was expressing a few areas in her heart, sort of uh, attitudes and thought patterns, she had noticed and that she wanted God to change. And so we discussed these in depth, uh, and then we prayed. And then she turned to me and she said, you know, Jordan, what sins are you struggling with? And I was quite taken aback. But the first thing that popped into my head was, well, I married a wife who's a sinner. <laughs> this was a bad, this is a bad joke. But I think it exposed, this exposed a common reality, right? That we so easily see the sins in others but we overlook our own, right? We like the idea of change in others, but we resist change in ourselves. (laughs) Why? Because it requires admitting that we're wrong. And so not only do you need to change, but I want to add to this that Christianity says that the change that are necessary are so integral to who you are, so a much part of your human nature, that what you actually need is a heart transplant. I grew up in a home that talked about Jesus quite a bit. My parents uh, loved Jesus, and they tried to, to, you know, always point us towards him. And I tried to do the right thing. I tried to be, you know, nice and kind and whatever. (laughs) And uh, being nice has this sort of interesting effect on other people because over time, they start to to appreciate you, to to trust you, to befriend you. And... um, I think back now, like retrospectively, of particularly a time in high school, and I think of how I enjoyed uh, how being a nice and respectable person gave me a certain amount of power and control over other people, and I did a lot of right things, but you see, my my heart motivation in it was actually self-seeking. It was my pride, right? I was trying to, to bolster and build and maintain a sort of control. And I'm going to come back to this later, but maybe the change we muster in ourselves is motivated this way, right? Sometimes the change we try and muster in ourselves is motivated by pride. And the problem, see then, is that I haven't really changed. The core problem in me is still there. And so what I needed was a change that went deeper, that got to the very root, the very deepest part of my affections and motivations. I needed a change, a reorientation of my self-seeking heart. But what is the gospel? The gospel is that even when we resist change in ourselves, even when we are stuck in the mess of our self-seekingness and our sin, that God broke in. 
right? As Christians, we believe in God, the creator and the sustainer of life. He was totally sufficient and perfect. In other words, he needed no change. And he could, if he, if he wanted, he could have stayed out of our mess, right? But he didn't. And he chose to interact with us in the person of Jesus. Jesus was God in flesh. And when we needed to change, when we needed heart transplants, God stepped in. Um, earlier this year, I was at an event in Ottawa, and the team pastor of the Humboldt Broncos was there, and he was speaking. And if you don't know, the Humboldt Broncos were a, a hockey team that was horrifically hit by a semi-truck, and 16 of the players were killed. And this pastor, he talked about how he was visiting in the hospital some of the, the team uh, mates who were injured. And some of them had received critical uh, life-saving organ transplants in order to survive. And he said that suddenly it hit him. That in order to receive a life-saving heart transplant, someone had to die. And so it is with us, right? When we needed a heart transplant, Jesus stepped in and died for us and gave us a new heart. And this changes us. This changes us because we didn't earn this heart ourselves. There is no way. And so what it does, it actually shatters our pride. It shatters it. And the gospel changed me. Let's go back to that nice guy in high school. That, that yearning for control, it grew and it grew. And actually, paradoxically, to the point, it caused my life to spiral out of control. In short, I, I took advantage of the trust that I had over uh, the teachers uh, and the other students and formed a sort of uh, hacking ring. Um, and when, when it got found out, I faced uh, expulsion. And I had a good friend who knew that I identified a, uh, as a Christian. And around this time, he came to me and he said this. He said, you know, Jordan, you call yourself a Christian, but you're a white-collar criminal. And his comment, it really, really shook me up. Because why couldn't I just be good for the sake of being good, without all this other stuff creeping in, the sort of like desire for control, the self-seeking and the sin, like it became so obvious to me, right? I was, be, be, you know, trying to be clean and put on this Christian religious front, but it was just in order to benefit myself. And it pushed me to wonder, did what I claim to believe really offer any meaningful change? Did what I claim to believe really offer any meaningful change? And it, this caused me, like, to lay awake, like, night after night in bed, right? And I began to see the reality of my self-seeking heart. And I pleaded with God to change me from the inside out. In other words, I sort of asked for this heart transplant to take place. Otherwise, this whole Christian thing was just a whole bunch of talk. And I think I can honestly say that during this time in my life that God did begin to change me that my affections began to be captured by Jesus, the one who voluntarily suspended the use of his power and control in order to come down and operate on me. And so a different heart in me, as my affections began to be grasped by him, a different heart in me began to beat. And I found myself wanting and desiring new things, a new will, and that desire for control began to change. But unlike all operations, it was painful. See, God had to show me that nice Christian clay with the clean, clean veneer, right? God had to show me I was wrong. And the gospel had to change me. And for the Christians in this theater, I have a challenge for you. See, we talk about relationship with God. 
But one of the evidences of relationship isn't just that the other person always affirms you, but that they also challenge you. How has God challenged you? How has God shown you your wrong? See, if God only ever affirms you and never challenges you, you might be just worshiping something a lot more like Winnie the Pooh than the Lion of Judah. (laughs) See, the Jesus of the gospel changes you. It's what the gospel is. And Paul wrote that the gospel was the power of God. And it was powerful not just because it was good and true, but because it was the means by which people received this heart plant, transplant. It was the means by which we were made progressively more and more and more like Christ. Jesus has reconciled us back into full relationship with God. And because he's done that, now the Holy Spirit can live in us and transform us. This is why, by the way, that we describe ourselves as a gospel-centered and spirit-led church. But gospel, right? It's the means by which people receive the transplant. And the gospel is also the means by which people are changed progressively more and more like Christ. And without the Spirit, right, we're left incapable of that true and the lasting change in our hearts. And so our desire here at Church 21 is like Paul's, to present everyone mature in Christ. We don't just want you to come and stay the same. We want you to change. Our vision is to grow you into maturity in Christ, to see you changed into his likeness, to take on his heart, his justice, his compassion, his love. This is maturity. This is Christ-likeness, becoming Christ-like. And notice that is we want to present everyone mature in Christ. This means that there's then no bystanders. We want everyone who knows and loves Jesus in the game, that you're all players, each and every one of you. We're calling you to step up and embody the gospel where you are. And so how does Church 21 help equip people to do this? Well, we offer something called change groups. And change groups are uh, sort of a regular meetup with two or three people, guys with guys and girls with girls. And the goal of the change group is to create a place for the gospel of Jesus to keep changing you, to keep doing that operation on your heart. And like those Christians in Acts, in Acts 2, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of prayer. Change groups do this through forming deep relationships where you study scripture and you pray and you can hold each other accountable to God. And you can be sure, like Paul uh, says of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, carry it to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. And so as you grow in maturity in Christ, even if you experience attacks, um, God is committed to growing you in maturity. So if you'd like to join a change group, uh, see your city group leader. And if you don't have a city group leader, come see someone on the greeting team afterwards. So the gospel changes you and me. But it can also change this city. Let's look again at the first Christians. In Acts 2, 44, it says, All the believers were gathered together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who had need. See, what kind of radical community is this? They trusted in Jesus' lordship over their lives so much that they were willing to share everything they had. 
See, this signaled the beginning of the end of tribalism. It was no longer me and my identity group in this corner and you and yours over in that corner. See, as Christians, this was a group that didn't exist to serve itself. It was a group that existed to serve those not yet within it. They cared about the poor and the marginalized. And because of what Jesus had done, they understood that the kingdom of God was breaking in. See, the gospel isn't just this good news that you can have a life-saving heart transplant. It's also the good news of the incoming reign of God. That he doesn't just reign in our hearts, but he's reigning over this city. And so if Jesus is Lord, it doesn't just change individuals. It changes entire communities. It changes cities. But changing big things like cities can seem really daunting, right? We think about uh, the injustices in this city and the needs in this city. And it, it makes us heavy. It weighs down on us. So what is the vision for the gospel changing this city? Well, like those early Christians who didn't exist to serve themselves, so, too, the vision of Church 21 isn't to build a great church for itself, but to build a great city. It's the gospel that does this. It's the gospel that advances the common good. It enables us to live generously and increases philanthropy and volunteerism. It's the gospel that restores dignity and heals racial divides. It's the gospel that seeks mercy and pursues justice and peace. It cares about the poor. It makes our workplaces more humane. And when the gospel changes our hearts and mine, it can change entire cities. Let me give you an example. Um, last year, my wife worked as a, a learning specialist at a, a school with kids who have learning disabilities. And for those of you who have worked with teenagers, you know how exhausting and how difficult this uh, can sometimes be. And Sandra uh, noticed in herself the tendency to become uh, either emotionally exhausted by the work or to become jaded towards the students' problems. And then um, in her second year, she realized that uh, she came to know that there was actually several other Christians in her school. So they started to meet uh, Christian teachers. They started to meet regularly uh, and pray for their students. And here's what happened. They found that they were able to care for their students more deeply because they were attached to a greater, a more stable source of, of love and affection, God. And, and that the support of other Christians in their workplace, right, reminding each other of the gospel and regularly praying for their, their work, and it enabled them to more fully pursue the well-being of the students that they worked with, right, to create a more humane working environment. And this, I think, is uh, a very simple example. But even if you know just one Christian in your workplace, I would encourage you to, to meet with them, to pray with them, to think about how the gospel can make your workplace a more honest, a more merciful, a more humane place to work. And it's the gospel that does this. It's the gospel that changes cities. And so our desire at Church 21 is to see Montreal go from being one of the least reached peoples of the world to the one of the most reached peoples of the world. To go from being a place where people come to plant churches to being a place that sends people 
out to plant churches. We've already planted um, a, tr- a service on the French side, Eglise 21, and we're involved in another one right now uh, in the West Island, Reach Montreal. But we're planning and we're planning and we're training for more even in the coming years. There's people who've moved to this city for this very purpose, and we're setting up an academy for this very purpose. And this is where you come in. You can't do this alone. We can't do this alone. We can't do this as just Church 21, Montreal, downtown. This vision requires new leaders and new churches infused with the gospel, taking a step up everywhere, right? Not just church leaders, right? But other churches. We need you too, right? Remember, you're a culture maker. The people you interact with, the people you work with, the way that you spend your time, you're an agent. You're a gospel carrier. And you impact the culture of the city of Montreal, And so while this task is daunting, it seems daunting. For King Jesus, it's not. And so some of you here who are Christians, you might be thinking something like this. Shouldn't I just focus on my personal piety? Shouldn't I just be focusing on my prayer and on my reading and on my relationship with God? Well, the answer to this is quite simple. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Right? The gospel changes you, and when it changes you, it will necessarily change the way that you interact with the people around you. It will change your public life. And this is why, by the way, that we call ourselves a missional church. Because being missional is being able to enter into the stories of our culture and being able to reshape them with the story of the gospel. The way that the gospel either challenges Um, to point out, to show, to demonstrate the way that the gospel either challenges or deconstructs or affirms and empowers our cultural stories. Um, Very much in the same way how I started by, by saying how without Christianity, the idea of progress falls, right? We want to train people not just for private faith, but for a public faith then that takes the gospel into consideration in every aspect of their lives, a gospel that shows and tells, And we want to seek, like God's people of old who were in exile, the welfare of this city, the welfare of the city of Montreal, to be, like Jesus says in Matthew, a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. The gospel advances the common good. Its warmth and its light is shared and shed on all. The gospel changes the city. And how do we do this at Church 21? We offer something called city groups. Um, We describe city groups as a family of servants on mission. And this is an expression of how our new identity in Christ has reconciled, brought us into right relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this family of servants on mission. Well, why family? Well, the Father. What has the Father done? The Father done. In order to make us a son and a daughter of God, the Father substituted the Son. This is how much he loved us. And what God has done in us, he now wants to do through us. And so we are family of God, and we love and we welcome others the way that God has loved and welcomed us. So that's family, a family of servants. Why servants? Because the son, the son came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what God has done in us, he now wants to do through us. And so we serve the least of these as he has served us. So that's a family of servants on mission. Why mission? Because the Spirit, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, and the Spirit in turn sends 
us. And so as God has done to us, he wants to do through us. And so we go empowered and proclaiming the good news of Jesus to this city. So we're a family of servants on mission. And we want to be living our everyday life with gospel intentionality and community. What does this look like in our neighborhood for our city group? Well, in NDG, uh, we do all sorts of stuff. Yesterday, um, a bunch of us got together and helped Alan and Carissa move from one house to the next. Then later that night, one of the people in the city group called me and said, I've just made supper. It's still hot. I'll come and drop it off for you. And I couldn't believe it, but he did it. Um, uh, Last week, we had dinner in the park, and we invited out our neighbors, and we got to know some of them, and we've been forming community with them. Um, as part of our study, we have some Jewish and some Muslim friends who've actually joined and become part of our group and are walking with us, learning um, more about Jesus. In the next few weeks, we hope to start volunteering uh, with an organization that's trying to create more humane conditions with people of old age and mental disability. And so now you're just like, oh, he's just painted like a super rosy picture, right? It's... Let's be honest. It's far from perfect. But, but here's the point. That what God calls us to do, he empowers us to do with our new identity as a family of servants on mission. And we'd like to call every believer to, to step up and to enter into this new identity. And so if you're not part of a city group, I'd like to invite you to join Engage, the thing that Brian talked about right at the beginning, the thing that's starting uh, next week. And in there, we'll, we'll, we'll help unpack this for you more, um, and that class will take it from there. So the gospel changes you. Um, it, it changes you, and it makes you a culture maker. And, it, and then in turn, it changes the city. The gospel changes you, it changes the city, and finally, it changes the world. Let's look back at those first Christians. In Acts 2, 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Remember that this is where we begin this morning. But this is also a description of the beginning of the Christian church. They were meeting together in their homes and praising God, celebrating what he was doing. This is the beginning of a movement to change the world with the gospel. And so our vision motto, right, change the city collectively. Change in that was for change groups. And city in that was for city groups. And finally, collective was for what we're doing right now, our Sunday gathering. And so why do we gather collectively? Well, one of the reasons that we all gather together here each week is like those first Christians, we want to celebrate how the gospel is changing the world, that God is at work in this world. Christianity is still growing at a staggering rate. Right? We tend to get skewed to this, but the world is predicted to become more religious, not less. And even in Western countries where many view religion as in decline, the cultural hubs are actually bucking this trend. The Diocese of London from 2001 to 2015 grew by 16%. Church attendance in New York City in this same time period grew by 15%. Key Western cities are seeing an increase in gospel-centered churches rather than a decline. And the trends in the non-Western world are even more staggering. Iraq, China, countries that, or sorry, Iran and China, these countries, right, these house some of the fastest growing churches in the world, and that's despite their persecution. 
And by the way, I'm not saying that church attendance is the ultimate solution, but it's an indication of gospel penetration. And my point is this, that the gospel is the power of God. It's changed. It goes beyond just this theater, and it goes beyond just this city. The gospel changes this world. And so even when we look around and we're discouraged and we're like, we see our lives as stagnant or this city as stagnant and irresponsive to the gospel, even if that were true, we can look across the world and be reminded by the immense power of the gospel that God is changing this world. Listen to John's vision for the world changed by the gospel. In Revelation 5, he talks about how all nations and all people, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation would be gathered around God, singing before him, celebrating what Christ has done. And so when we gather here on Sundays, what we do is we step into that, part of that international celebration, celebrating what God has done, singing in the present the song of the future. And heaven, in a sense, it starts to break in. But what is this future hope that we celebrate? Remember, Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. This is not a church in retreat. This is not a church on defense. This is a church on the move, declaring that Jesus is over everything. And so we can have certain hope in the progress of history, that Jesus will come again. And so listen to John's vision of the future. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is heaven coming down, right? The marriage, the reconciliation, the bringing back together of heaven and earth. And John goes on, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God dwelling with us. The reconciliation, not just of heaven and earth, but of God and man. And he goes on. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away, that this is, this is it. Through the reconciliation of us to God and us to each other and heaven and earth together, God dwelling with his people, right? The distorted motivations of our heart, the brokenness of our city, of our world is all passed away. It's all done away with. This is the future picture that God paints for us. And you might not be feeling that way this morning. You might be feeling like change is impossible, that the weight of the world's wrongs is on you or against you. But I want to close by recounting this hymn, by reading this hymn. I want you to listen to the truth that it has in it. This is my Father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied in earth and heaven be one. This is the progress of history. Earth and heaven be one. Allow God to step in and to give you that heart transplant, that operation, knowing that the gospel can change you, can change the city, and it changes the world. That this is the progress of history. It's real. I'm going to pray, and then we'll respond. 
Lord, I thank you that you are real. I thank you that you have stepped into our history to affect the change that we needed right into the core of our beings, our hearts. That you have taken my heart and you've taken that selfish, twisted, control-mongering heart and supplanted it with a heart that gives up control for you. So God, I pray that you would be our change, that you'd be the change in our lives and in this city and in this world by the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.